0: Welcome back to Convos with Dr. Kate. In this episode, I am chatting with two representatives from PYC Therapeutics who are developing a drug for Phelan-McDermid syndrome, specifically an RNA therapeutic. And in this episode, I ask what exactly are RNA therapeutics? What is their drug targeting and how does it work? What are the timelines and plans going forward? What can we hope to be improved with this drug what types of challenges are associated with the approach, and we also talk a little bit about what types of efforts are needed by the foundation and from families to support engagement from pharmaceutical companies like PYC Therapeutics. So I'm chatting with Dr. Sue Fletcher and Dr. Rebecca Simmons, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Becca and Sue. Thank you for being here with me today. I would love to start with introducing yourselves, if you wouldn't mind. I can start first with Sue.
1: Hello, my name is Sue Fletcher. I am Chief Scientific Officer at PYC Therapeutics. I am a molecular and cell biologist with about 30 years of experience in developing new generation drugs to treat rare inherited diseases. Um, Our research team, which was located at the University of Western Australia in Perth, developed drugs that are now used to treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy. These drugs were licensed to Sereptotherapeutics, a biotechnology company
0: based in the USA. Thank you very much. And Rebecca?
2: I am Rebecca Simmons. I am the group lead for the Shank3 program at PYC Therapeutics. My specialization and training have focused on the field of neuroscience, mostly how the brain develops after birth and particularly on understanding the neurobiology of neurological disorders. Um, I've been in the field for about 15 years and i worked on a range of projects from Alzheimer's to autism to mood disorders. And right before I joined PYC, I focused on next generation sequencing of brain sample samples and gene expression profiles over basically development from mid-gestation to adulthood. And we recently got that published. It was pretty exciting for us.
0: Thank you so much. And you both work at PYC Therapeutics, as you've mentioned. So what is PYC Therapeutics in a nutshell?
1: PYC Therapeutics is an RNA therapeutics company that combines novel delivery methods and technologies with our very specific genetic or gene drugs uh, to develop compounds known as RNA therapeutics to treat rare diseases.
0: You mentioned the term RNA therapeutics, which I think we've heard a lot and families have heard a lot. Uh, but we don't always have a clear idea of, of what that is. So could you give a broad overview of RNA therapeutics, what they are in contrast to other therapeutics?
1: Certainly, the the term has become a little bit more popular over the last three years. People know about RNA because, of course, of the vaccines. So mainstream or conventional drugs tend to be small molecules that are chemically synthesized, and these target various proteins. And they may work either outside the cell or inside the cell, depending on how these drugs are made. RNA therapeutics, on the other hand, are designed using genetic information, And they act on processes within the cells that are kind of upstream of proteins, upstream of the kind of production of proteins. These new generation drugs are very specific to their targets that are inside the cells. And they are also referred to as a type of precision medicine.
0: I think this is a really exciting direction for Phelan-Madermid syndrome, targeted therapeutics that are meant to address some of the underlying, you know, genetic ties to the disorder. Um, For any more information, if families are wondering, I did an educational feature on RNA therapeutics, specifically antisense oligonucleotides, and how they might differ from, you know, gene therapy, Um, and just explaining the gene RNA protein pathway that these drugs are in. Um, So we have a blog post on our website. And then we also have a video accompanying that. um, What are ASOs and, you know, why are we hearing more about them? So your therapeutic at PYC is designed to target shank three. And this is how you came to connect with us a little while ago. How did PYC Therapeutics specifically become interested in Shank 3?
2: So I have had a longstanding interest in neurodevelopment and autism spectrum disorder. And for me, my graduate experience basically afforded me the opportunity to kind of combine my interest in autism with a research opportunity to investigate specific biological changes in the brain during development. And shank three came to my attention when I was investigating a novel therapeutic treatment for post stress disorder. It's called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. Very long winded, I'll just refer to it as RTMS. I basically became interested in shank three as a gene that changed positively with this treatment. And when I joined PYC, Sue asked that I present my graduate work to the company. And at the end of the presentation, she asked me which genes I was most interested in. And I ended up presenting a very compelling argument for why Shank3 was interesting. And together with my former team lead, we basically built out the program. The company agreed and we started to pursue it.
0: So essentially you have a, a Shank3 therapeutic that's been added to your pipeline. Um, and we hear that term a lot, and I think it's just an indication that you're working towards essentially trying to treat a certain disorder with that therapeutic, and you're working in testing for it, Um, but you typically at companies have other programs ongoing with other drugs in the pipeline. What other programs does PYC Therapeutics have ongoing?
1: We have two lead ocular therapeutic Programs. Both of these are for uh, an inherited blindness that has a childhood or you know, young adult onset. One of these, um, one of these compounds, one of these uh, candidate drugs, is due to enter clinical trials very shortly. Um, and the other is progressing through clinical, preclinical development. Uh, we have an additional program in kidney and a discovery program exploring other potential therapeutic targets.
0: That's exciting, especially that something is set to enter clinical trials soon. So speaking about the specific therapeutic for SHANK-3, can you describe the therapeutic and the approach you're taking? Yeah,
2: so various terms have been used to describe our class of RNA therapies. They're known as antisense oligonucleotides or ASOs. Um, Sue's early research used ASOs to overcome disease-causing mutations in an inherited muscle disease. And her team described ASOs as like genetic patches or genetic whiteouts. These ASOs basically hid the mutation from the gene message from the cell machinery during processing and allowed a functional protein to be made. Um, but ASOs can be used for quite a few in a quite a few different ways. They can be used to knock down a problematic gene message to increase the output from a gene in order to produce enough protein for cells to function or to kind of change the structure or function of a gene message and consequently change the protein.
0: And in the case of shank three, what is the approach? Yep, so
2: our shank three ASOs increase the amount of shank three protein from the intact shank three gene. So in PMS, patients, as everybody probably knows, have around 50% of healthy levels. It's not enough for complete function and neurons. So we believe by increasing the healthy gene output, we can push shank 3 to normal healthy
0: levels. And we do have your press release where you had a little bit of data showing an increase in shank 3 in cells, I believe, in our what are ASO's uh, material. Uh, we have linked to the press release there. And again, a lot of detail there about what antisense oligonucleotides are visually, uh, because I think this is a tough topic to explain, but a lot of information is there in both the blog post and the YouTube video. So I'd love to discuss the fact that this is, this is a therapeutic that is targeting SHANK3, which is a big gene that the majority of people have altered in PMS and plays a huge role in a lot of the symptoms that people with PMS have. And we know that people with PMS can have other missing copies of genes. They can have deletions or they can have genes that are affected that aren't shank three. So would this approach help with other genes or would this be specifically targeted to shank three?
2: our therapy that we're developing is specific to the deficiency in shank three. So it is a shank three specific therapy at this point in time.
0: Thank you. And I think we know that, as I mentioned, shank three is a key gene underlying a lot of symptoms. uh, And we hope that targeting it will help a lot of people with PMS um, and will play a big role, but we just want to be transparent that we don't know for sure because the, the genetics are complex underlying our condition. And I think a a primary question that many families have for drug development is, what stage is this testing currently in? Can you describe that a little bit?
2: So we are currently in what is referred to as preclinical development for the shank 3 program. This means we've identified strategies to increase the shank 3 protein production from the remaining healthy shank 3 gene. And These molecules at the moment require refinement and validation and appropriate models.
1: Preclinical testing is carried out in both cell and animal models, ideally, taking the best approach available in each. Of critical importance is the study of the drug's interaction with the cell machinery, and this is usually cells or little, um, little organoids, we call them, grown in addition to the laboratory. We also need to use other models to ensure that the safest possible treatment is taken forward, and, and this is often laboratory rodents.
0: So it essentially seems like, you know, by the time that we're hearing about drugs as a community that are targeting Philmodermatt syndrome, they're essentially either preclinical and in this animal testing phase or, or cell model testing phase or any other model, or they're you know moving into clinical, which is essentially, Um, clinical trials. So thank you for um, distinguishing that. And I know that it's really difficult to give estimates on timeline. Um, Sometimes you just don't know how long this testing will take and how successful it will be. But could you give any general indications of how long the preclinical phase can take? Is this on the order of months, years?
1: There are a number of stages in the preclinical evaluation of a drug. So our lead compound, the one to treat um, inherited blindness, was invented by a PhD student during her studies and was acquired by PYC in 2019. So last week, the FDA approved our application to commence clinical trials. So that gives you an idea of the timeframe. So the disc- the early discovery was done at the university and then there was pretty much a year of ongoing discovery, working with a drug delivery system at, at PYC to then go into animals and, and, and put forward the application to carry out clinical trials. So that, that gives you an idea of the sort of time frame in, in this case. And while each drug development journey is a bit different, we can leverage the experience we have gained over the last couple of years with our ocular drug, so we have learned a lot, and we also have uh, a lot of the contacts, the processes. We've built relationships with with mm-hmm. the various companies that you need to engage with, who help you with the paperwork and guide you through the paperwork, and which is a massive amount to to take your uh, take our compound to the to the FDA. So we, we we should be able to leverage some time savings there,
0: and that gives a good amount of context as to how long these things take. And even though it's, it's pretty far off right now, I think a question at the front of a lot of families' minds is when and if there will be clinical testing or clinical trials, um, where might that happen? So would you be able to elaborate on where you are currently based and if you know uh, where you might conduct trials possibly in the future? So
2: we're based in Perth, Western Australia, so kind of a little remote. Um, as Sue was kind of mentioning, our current lead drug is about to enter clinical trials. And we have several sites in the US and some sites in Australia as well. And these multi-centered trials are usual for rare diseases and therapies. Um, but the selection of the site ultimately depends on the clinicians who put forward to work with us. So. Our goal right now would be to try to do the same as what the LEAD trial is doing and have the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Australia sites, um, but we will have to see how that moves forward.
0: I should mention that we do have quite a bit of a time difference. We started this meeting at 7.30 in the morning, my time, and I think it was 830 in the evening for you all, so we're working on making this work for meetings, you know, regularly with a with a 13 hour time difference, which is great. So, if or when you know you're able to validate these things thoroughly in in models, um, and it and it would move towards you know more clinical testing, uh, at that point you start selecting you know, clinical endpoints. And I'm aware this is down the road, um, but can you speak at all to how you go about selecting those endpoints and what they are? Yeah, so
2: we're working quite closely with you guys as well as others to determine our clinical endpoints and to understand what is important to patients and to their families. Um, clinical endpoints are features that can basically be measured provide the data to show if therapy is working. So Sue's used the example of a drug that treats high blood pressure. It should result in reduced blood pressure and blood pressure would be that clinical endpoint. So we are in the process of validating our, canic- our candidate preclinically and using animal models to assess behavioral and functional changes following delivery of the drug. And we are gonna use that in addition to our relationship with you guys to inform our clinical endpoints
0: so i I would love to talk about challenges with any drug development. You know, there are challenges um, speaking about RNA therapeutics as a whole if you're able to give any more detail about some of the the challenges and questions that generally you're trying to address.
1: Uh, I'll touch briefly on the challenges of the RNA therapeutics as a class first, so ASOs and RNA therapeutics have been explored in the research sector for many years, I've I've worked in this field for, for, for about 30 years. But clinical use of these drug classes is somewhat more recent. And as with all new drug modalities, such compounds have been subjected to really intense scrutiny and ongoing validation. The primary focus is safety and then there will be outcome measures that will determine whether the drug is working or not. But regardless of the type of the disorder, we face the same requirements of careful testing, validation in patient-derived cell models, and safety testing in lab animals, and functional testing in lab animals if a model is available, but we don't always have an appropriate lab model for the diseases that, that we are trying to treat. These studies help us to determine the optimum dosages and treatment frequency. So we can can plan our study um, and and have a a good idea of how often we will need to um, treat to maintain uh, a a treatment effect. My previous work on muscular dystrophy was all done in patient cells and the exact drug couldn't be tested in mice because the mice had a different mutation, but we could test the concept in mice Mm -hmm. that had a muscle disease and, from concept to drug approval took just under 20 years. So my, my, my sons never knew anything different for the, for the entire time that they were at school. The situation is very, very different now. Technology and fast internet are our best friends. Mm-hmm. They really are. The techniques and analyses that took a month can now be done in a day. And the chemical synthesis of of the compounds was incredibly laborious. It was very, we couldn't, we struggled to get pure compounds. And um, even accessing, even accessing the literature, uh, you know, early on, we would sometimes have to wait a week or two weeks to get papers sent to us because they weren't all, they they weren't available. So, so things are very, very different um, and we are able to work an awful lot faster
0: just watching, you know, the conception of certain techniques, all the way to addressing a lot of these hurdles over time across a lot of disorders is exciting. And, uh, you know, we're just thrilled to see relatively specific approaches for our disorder, you know, overcoming some of these, these barriers. And uh, another question that families often have is they want to know if it, if it might be too late for their child is there anything known about at what age or stage of development this approach would be most successful? Yeah,
2: so, we know that shank three is expressed at the highest levels around age two or three, and it doesn't appear to be critically important in fetal development. And we know from animal models that the restoration of shank three in juvenile and adult rodents corrects some behaviors and improves function of the nerves. We believe that our therapeutic could benefit all ages, but as with all such treatments, the early intervention is likely to be
0: preferred. Mm-hmm. And one of the last questions I wanted to talk about is we at PMSF and in the community are always focused on successful partnerships with pharma. Um, these are long-term ongoing partnerships, uh, including la- lowering barriers to clinical trials. Uh, Can you speak a little bit about what was kind of needed in some of these initial stages to make the investment and make the leap in developing a drug for PMS and how the foundation and families best support these kinds of decisions?
1: We're extremely grateful to the PMS community and organizations for the patient and family involvement in natural history studies. These studies give us absolutely critical information that allows us to justify developing a therapeutic and gives us the data that is needed to help structure clinical trials. I mentioned in, in one of the other studies they had a placebo group. A a, child, a family with somebody who has a serious illness would, not, would much rather their child went on the uh, treatment arm than on a placebo arm. These natural history studies allow us to really um, limit the use of, placebos and gives us really, really important um, information on the the changes that we might expect to see and the changes that might be important. So every one of you is already helping enormously.
2: And many families have already provided cell samples that can be used to generate patient and healthy family member cell models. And these are I I don't think I can explain how critical these are gonna be for the drug development and testing. And honestly, without these models, we wouldn't have a research program. So we are very grateful to every family who has donated or will donate in the future. Um, It's it's an invaluable resource for us.
1: And, And I can add to that, please understand that every family that has joined a registry provided data and as Becca said, the samples is part of our journey, and is contributing to our drug development.
0: I think something that we also discussed, you know, early on in our meetings, is even just data of how many people have PMS, and you know, where in the world. So, just the the foundation membership is also really important because um, this helps to understand the viability of a program, and. Um, we really appreciate those answers because families have given valuable time and resources to a lot of these initiatives. It's our plan to continue collecting uh, samples, so we're hoping that at our next family conference, where we all get together, uh, that we can collect some more bio samples and store these, you know, in a responsible way. They're currently stored at um, National Institutes of Mental Health bio repository, and um, I just want to reiterate the importance of the natural history study which has been going on for um, you know, more than six or seven years now uh, and has hundreds of people with PMS in it with really good quality data over time and also the PMS data hub. So anybody that has joined is, is huge for programs like this so we are so thankful for you all and it's a true partnership with the families PMSF is is frequently speaking with with pharma companies over periods of time so in this case with pyc therapeutics it's great that we can be updated frequently and we can meet every so often we plan to meet every few months and we've already met a few times so we really appreciate having a seat at the table and being able to update the community so i think with that i don't have any other questions do you all have anything else to add before we wrap up
2: No, part of me wishes there was a video because I feel like I've been nodding the whole conversation,
0: (laughs) (laughs) like agreeing,
2: very strongly agreeing with everything. Yeah, everything. It's been a really, really fun discussion and hopefully we can have some more in the future.
1: want to add my thanks so much, Kate. This is, this is, it's so important to us. you know we can't we can't do research in isolation we can only do research with partners and there's no point in us doing research that's not relevant to the community so it is your community that is going to help us build a better program and uh, we are grateful to you all we wish you well and uh, wish you good night from Australia